Welcome to all of you who are listening to this episode of my podcast. This episode is going to deal with the war years in Myanmar or in Burma. There have been many books written about the war years and particularly how those living in Burma managed to get out to India or in many cases didn't get out to India. I will cover Charles Kampanyak's experience in two episodes as he goes into quite some detail and I think some of the stories are very important for us to understand and be aware of. It, it wasn't until the 4th of September 1939 that news reached Rangoon that, the, that World War II had commenced. And what surprised me was that life continued pretty normally there until the end of 1941. In fact, Charles talks about the first Japanese air raid on Rangoon on the 23rd of December 1941. Apparently that morning, he and his his wife and three children were driving in their car to Rangoon to make some purchases for Christmas when a number of Japanese bombers flew over. Charles continues, I turned the car around and went back to the house and told my wife and daughter and my younger son to take shelter in a ditch under a bridge at the back of my house. I drove to Rangoon to pick up some girls working in offices to take them back to their homes. On my way, I found the streets littered with Indian dead. The poor Indian labourers were quite distracted at the bombing and did not know what to do, and they just ran through the streets in panic. The Japanese planes flew low and machine-gunned them. At several places on the road, I had to stop my car and drag dead bodies to the side of the road to enable me to proceed. The Burmans reacted very differently from the Indians to the bombing. They took shelter and opened drains, and immediately the planes had passed over, they went to their houses, packed their clothes and cooking utensils, and started marching gaily out of Rangoon to take shelter in the jungles. When I passed the suburb of Kemendin that afternoon, I found every house empty. Raymond, who was one of Charles's sons, returned home that evening with a baby on the handlebar of his bicycle. This child had been abandoned by its parents and was left crying on the side of the road. The Japanese bombers came over again on the 25th and bombed many places in Rangoon. On the 26th of December, Charles decided to send his wife up country to Pegu. At this time, Rangoon was a deserted city. Nearly everyone who could do so had left. During the last days, many strange people turned up in Rangoon. Among them were three British commandos, who my brother-in-law, a pilot on the river, had met and invited to his house. When these men arrived, my brother-in-law was out on the river, but I happened to be in his house, which was in the next compound to mine. 
I've rarely seen three such tough-looking men. They were carrying all their arms and equipment. They told me that they had just come from Ceylon and that they had no Burma money with them. I was able to change some of their notes into Burmese currency and gave them a meal at my house. My cook, I'm glad to say, did not desert me and remained with me up to the end. I asked these commandos where they were going. They said they were going up the river to sink any launches or motorboats that might be afloat to prevent them falling into the hands of the Japanese. I never saw these men again and wonder if they survived the war. A few days before the order was given for the general evacuation of Rangoon, a meeting of the Burmese Senate was held at which it was moved that in view of the danger of Rangoon being captured by the Japanese, the Senate should move to Mandalay. Sir John Wise, councillor to the governor, Sir Reginald Dorman Smith, assured the Senate that there was no danger of the Japanese entering Rangoon and that Rangoon would be held at all costs. A few days later, the order was given for everyone to evacuate the city. For some time before this, the poorer classes of Indians had left Rangoon or tried to leave by train or road. The only people who remained at their posts were Anglo-Burmese men and women. If it had not been for them, the administration would have broken down. The Anglo-Burman railwomen kept the railways running. All other staff had disappeared. Engine drivers had to stop their engines and set the points on the line. They had to fuel and water their own engines. Trains were crowded to capacity. Men and women were heaped on top of each other right up to the roofs of the carriages, and some actually climbed onto the roofs and had their heads knocked off when the train went under a bridge or through a tunnel. On D-Day, the day on which everyone was ordered to evacuate Rangoon, a most dreadful thing happened. The prisoners in Rangoon Central Jail and the inmates of the mental hospital were released. It is horrifying to contemplate what must have happened to some of the women and girls. A number of them were Europeans and Anglo-Burmese who were set at liberty and came into contact with the prisoners from the jail. The officer who gave the order to release these people was Fielding Hall, the son of Fielding Hall, who wrote the book, The Soul of a People. He was so horrified at what he saw, he committed suicide. Fielding Hall was not really responsible for what occurred. He was only carrying out the orders which had been given to him. I can find no excuse for the Burmese government in not having the women and children from the mental hospital sent by steamer to India, as there were a number of steamers which had brought arms and ammunition to in, into Rangoon, which returned empty. So Charles knew he too had to leave Rangoon, and he continues, I had to leave my house and all that it contained. I did not lock the doors as I knew that they'd be forced open by bandits. We left Rangoon at about four o'clock in the evening, and when we got on the road to Pegu, it was already dark. We could hear the sound of revelry in some of the villages as we passed. That indicated that the Japanese must have already entered these villages and that the people were celebrating at the thought they were going to gain freedom from the British. Attempts were made to halt us at several places by the flashing of torches, but I stepped on the petrol and drove on. We reached Chortaga at about three in the morning. 
I waited until four o'clock before setting out for the village of Chokong, about a mile away in which my wife and two children were stopping. Charles found his wife and children and told them to pack their things as quickly as possible. And he asked villagers to help him get two bullet carts to carry all of their luggage back to the main road. From Chautaga, we drove to Mandalay. All along the road, there were hundreds of Indians pushing carts, perambulators, and anything else on wheels they'd been able to find loaded with their belongings. Many thousands of these people died of starvation on the trek. We also saw Chinese soldiers and jeeps who were setting fire to motor cars and lorries which had been abandoned on the roadside. The drivers of these vehicles had been engaged to drive them to Mandalay, but many of them, after stripping the vehicles, left them and made their way into the villages in the interior. At Mandalay, we found Anglo-Burmans from all parts of Burma had congregated. Mandalay is a place of straight streets, miles in length, which are covered with dust and is a very undesirable place to live during the hot weather. An epidemic of cholera broke out and on the verandas of houses and on the roads, corpses in highly decomposed state were to be seen. Fortunately, stocks of cholera vaccine were flown in from India by the Indian Air Force. Everyone was asked to go to the general hospital to be inoculated. There was only one lady doctor to give the injections. She was a Miss Kriolansky, whose father was Russian and mother Burmese. From morning to night, for days, she remained on her feet, giving these inoculations to men, women and children. But it was impossible for her to cope with all the people who kept flocking to the hospital. There was an office set up in Mandalay to fly people out to India. It was only right that preference was given to pregnant women and to the younger girls and that the men and elderly people should be placed last on the list. I used to trudge along the dusty roads of Mandalay from the Sainban quarter where we were staying to the flying office in Mandalay, a distance of about two miles, to find out if there are any vacancies in the plans for my wife and children. My wife, however, refused to fly unless I accompanied her, and of course... I could not ask for any priority for myself. The two months we remained in Mandalay appeared to me now like a nightmare. There was a shortage of food and it was difficult to get drinking water. All the water had to be boiled and filtered. After about six weeks, my wife and I moved to the Sainban quarter to the civil lines where my wife's brother was an inspector of police and was living. A few days after we moved, the Japanese bombers came over Mandalay and in about 15 minutes raised it to the ground. There were no ACAC guns in Mandalay and no planes to intercept the Japanese bombers. They just flew low and went up and down the long streets of Mandalay and there was not a house left standing in the centre of town. Even the hospital was bombed and I never heard what happened to the unfortunate Burmese and Karen nurses from the hospital. Fortunately for us, we'd moved a house on the outskirts of Mandalay the day before this happened. After the bombing, I walked along the road and managed to get as far as the branch of the Imperial Bank. I found the bank deserted, but there were piles of notes and silver rupees stacked on the counter and in the well of the bank. I tried to make my way into the town, but the roads were actually on fire. I've never seen such a sight. Men, 
women and children were rushing about screaming at the top of their voices. Many of them were suffering from burns and had lost limbs. Mothers had lost their children and were crying out for them. Bullocks in carts and ponies in carriages were lying dead on the road and it was impossible to help anyone. Charles also tells a very sad story. His brother-in-law had managed to send his wife and family out by plane to India and he told them to go to Rawapindi. Um, he didn't actually know where that was, but he looked at it on a map and thought that it was far furthest away from uh, Burma and that his family would be safe there. So he gave a copy of the map to Sammy, his cook, and put a circle around the name of Rawapindi and told Sammy if anything should happen to him, he was to make his way to that place. So the brother-in-law divided his money and gave half to Sammy and the remainder he kept. So they had tracked nearly to Assam when they were machine gunned by Japanese planes. Poor Sammy was killed outright and Charles's brother-in-law received a number of bullets in his spine, which laid him up in hospital for many months. Charles and his family, along with many Anglo-Burmese, moved to a place called Tongbo, which was essentially in the forest. And there were no huts or shelters of any kind. And basically, they just had to live rough, as it were. And after some time, they decided they couldn't possibly stay there long term. And there were two options open. And Charles called a meeting of the refugees. I told them there seemed to be only two courses open to us. One was to decide to remain in Burma and to hide ourselves in the jungles until we could make contact with the Japanese Imperial Army and ask them for protection. The other was to make a representation to the governor, Sir Reginald Dorman Smith, and tell him the position we were in and ask him to arrange to fly us to India. There was a unanimous vote that we should follow the latter course. I then drafted a resolution and wrote a covering letter to Sir Reginald and arranged for it to be given to him. The following day, two brass hats came to the camp from Maimio and asked me if I was the author of the letter written to the governor. I told them I was, and they said it was a very stupid letter to write. I remarked if that was so, I did not know why they'd trouble to come and tell me so. They said, how do you think you're going to get away from here? I told him that it was not for me to think, but for them that they had the means and the power and knew exactly what the military situation was. They said that I must have something in my mind as to how we were going to get away when I wrote the letter. I said to them that if they had lost their wits, I was still in possession of mine, and I told them that I'd advise the government to send telegrams to India and China and to any other place in which there were aeroplanes and ask them to fly these planes to Mietkana, they asked me how I proposed to get there, and I told them by train. They said there are no engine drivers. I asked them whose fault was that. I told them that after the engine drivers had driven the last trains from Rangoon with the government officials in them and had frequently been bombed and machine guided by the Japanese on the journey, they had been dismissed with one month's notice. I told them that the engine drivers were now in the camp. They asked me whether the engine drivers would drive the trains, and I said they would 
if they are allowed to take their wives and families with them. They said this could not be permitted. I asked them if they'd taken leave of their senses and whether faced with similar circumstances, they would leave their families behind. They then said we would have to get evacuate by river. I retorted that it was bad enough for them to have left us stranded in this jungle and now they wanted to strand us in the middle of the river. I told them I'd been living near the shore before Mandalay was bombed and I knew that all the Indian boatswain had deserted the steamers. They then left, but they returned the following day and told me to ask the engine drivers to get the engines stoked up. In a day or two, the engines were ready and the evacuees were taken in buses through Mandalay, which was still burning after two months to the station outside Mandalay. When we left Mandalay, there were left behind about 40 children from the bishop's home, whose ages ranged from about five years to 12 years. They were left in the charge of two lady teachers and Dr. Alan Murray, who practiced as a dentist in Rangoon. These children were not in our camp, and I don't know why efforts were not made to send them by train to Mietnya. These unfortunate children were set out to trek to India, and every one of them, including the two teachers and Dr. Murray, died on the way of exposure and starvation. A number of people have blamed Sir Reginald Dorman Smith for this neglect to provide for the evacuation of, civil, of the civil population. I don't propose to join in this blame because Sir Reginald was new to the country and was faced with a very difficult situation which might have tried the abilities of any man. Further, he was badly advised and I do not think the military authorities took him entirely into their confidence. On arrival at Miet China, I hope I've pronounced it correctly this time or nearly correctly, planes started to be flown to the airfield and everyone had to be weighed. No one was allowed to carry more than four pounds weight of luggage. Another Anglo-Burman girl, a Miss Byrne, worked to the last, weighing the train loads of refugees who arrived daily. At this time, after consulting my wife, I decided that rather than allow my daughter to fall into the hands of the Japanese, I would shoot her. I used to go into the jungle every day and practice shooting the lid off a cigarette tin, which I nailed to a tree. My resolve was that I should ask my daughter to get me something and that when her back was turned, I would shoot her. I never told her of this, but my wife and I agreed that she was better off dead than to fall into the hands of an onrushing Japanese army about whose atrocities we'd heard so much. The day before the Japanese in entered Mietchina, my family were about to go down to the bank of the river to bathe when our names were called. We hastily ran to the flying office and were told that a plane was shortly expected at the airfield and that some persons whose names had been posted to fly in this plane could not be found. We were bundled into a bus and driven about 10 miles to the airfield. We had to wait there for about two hours before, before a plane descended, and when it did so, we had to make a rush and clamber in as best we could, as the planes could not remain on the ground for more than a minute or two for fear of being dive-bombed by Japanese planes. The plane we got into was a Canadian troop carrier, and it accommodated about 40 people. 
all of us were in very high spirits and there were shouts of, are we downhearted? At which the whole plane would shout, no. We gave way to our pent-up feelings and sang all the old songs during the flight. Soon after we took to the air, there was a violent thunderstorm. There were thick black clouds in the sky and visibility was nil. It was amazing how the pilot steered the plane over the high mountains which separate Burma from Assam and landed us safely at Dinjan Airfield. Interestingly, the plane that had preceded them never arrived and was never heard of again. This is probably a good spot to stop this episode and in the next one, I'll deal with what happens next after they arrived in India. Thank you very much for listening.